So this morning, I'm going to actually begin a series in the book of Ephesians. And this is, uh, even though I said at the beginning of the service that our reading of it starts next week, uh, in order for me to fit in sort of the things that I would like us to see, both in the book of Ephesians and in the book of Colossians, I'm, I'm going to start preaching through that one now and sort of hopscotching around a little bit in that one. So the, that's where we are starting today in Ephesians chapter 1 looking at some of the themes there. But, but this is uh, the beginning of a series. So, so what I'm doing today is I'm going to set things up for where it's going and where it's meant to go over the coming weeks. So, so if, if we get through today and you leave here thinking there should have been a little bit more, yeah, that's still coming. I, I'm not going through all of Ephesians in, in all one day here. So we'll get there. Thinking that there should be something more. And now I... I remember vacations when I was very young, right? When, when I was a kid, and uh, vacations were mostly just kind of right around the Midwest for my family, and some of those vacations were highlights. I remember as, uh, as a kid, the first time going to Cedar Point, and, and we did this rather strategically that we, my parents did not take the family to Cedar Point until I had grown to be 48 inches tall, and that was on purpose because at least back then, most of the roller coasters, that was the minimum height. You had to be at least that tall to get on it. So uh, that was a great vacation, my first experience of roller coasters at Cedar Point. And, and back in that day, the Gemini was the largest coaster they had at Cedar Point. If you go now, it's probably one of the smallest that still exists there, but it's still there. Uh, that was a highlight. Then there were other vacations, vacations that they stick in my mind, but for other reasons, reasons where I thought this should have been a little something more. It didn't really meet the standards. So I remember the summer when my parents borrowed a motor home and we went up to the Upper Peninsula and vacationed up there. And I was about 10 years old at the time, and 10-year-old me was not all that impressed with many of the things that happened in the Upper Peninsula. Stopped at Tequamanon Falls, up in the Upper Peninsula. Ten-year-old me was not impressed. We drove forever to get to this place, and then had to hike into the woods, and when we got there, it's just water, a river. And you just stand there and look at it. Ten-year-old me thought, what, we don't get a raft and, and go over it? We, we can't ride this? or at least we can't stand under it. It's like taking your kid to a water park and saying, all you can do is just look at it. Just stand and watch it. There was something more. I wanted something more. Then there was Castle Rock. You ever been to that place up in the Upper Peninsula, right? St. Ignace, just over the bridge, 200-foot straight-up rock that you go to and I forget what it was, like back in the day you paid a quarter. And, and there was a trail of stairs that go behind to a platform up on top. And I thought, is that it? Can't we go up the outside? Can't I climb the front of it? Seems like that's what we ought to do. thought there should have been something more. Then we went to the Sioux Locks up in Sault Ste. Marie there. This one made no sense to 10-year-old me. Wait a minute, so we just sit here, we watch boats go in, the water either slowly goes up or down, and then the boats go out. That's all we do? We just sit and watch that? I mean, 
to make it fun, how about you just open the gates without the water going down and watch the boat fly out, or the other way around, let it in and let the water come in and see if the boat can still come up to the top somehow. Ten-year-old me thought, there's got to be more than this. I wonder sometimes if we have those experiences in other parts of our life too, right? Experiences that we live through where we get through that and we think to ourselves, there should have been something more. Or I I was maybe expecting something more, or at least I was expecting something different than what happened. I think that's what we're going to see as we get into the book of Ephesians. Because Ephesians is written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus about, I think, that kind of question. What more is there? There should be something more. Because the He's writing to the Ephesian church, and these are people who come, they hear the gospel, they come to know Jesus, they believe in Jesus, and then what happens next? So I accept the message of salvation, I accept the gospel, I believe, I'm baptized, I'm saved, I have the Holy Spirit. Now what? Is there any more? Or is this it? That's what Ephesians gets into. And I wonder if that same thing maybe hits into our lives at points. Those of us, especially if we've been in the church for a while. You know, I I believe all the right things because I've been taught all those things in the Bible. I've got some of those disciplines or habits down of coming to church and going to a Bible study, that kind of thing. I, I give back a little bit and I help in service where I can. But is there more? Is there anything I'm missing along this? Is the life of faith meant for anything more than that? I think Ephesians, we're going to see something of that. What more is there that maybe we're missing out on that God intends for us? Okay, so starting today, Ephesians, I'm going to begin in chapter 1, and this is verses 3 to 14. It's sort of in the introduction to the letter, and there's a lot going on here. And it seems like Paul is all over the map in what he's talking about and saying. I'm going to mark out a few things as we read through it, just so you can see the structure, because Paul is giving a nod here towards the Trinity, right? So let's let's see how this goes. Ephesians 1, starting at verse 3, and he's starting with God the Father. says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. I'm going to note that. The one he loves. That's Jesus he's talking about. The one who's given for us. Now, we're switching from father to son in verse 7 here. Now we're talking about the Son, Jesus. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavishes on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. 
In him, still talking about Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we, who are the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Now we're shifting from Son to Holy Spirit in verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth and the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance with the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, there's a lot going on in that passage. And, and this is one of those passages that, uh, for those in the Calvinist Reformed tradition, th- this is one of those predestination passages. I'm not here today to preach about the doctrine of predestination. If you want to know what predestination is and how it works and all of that, read the Canons of Dort, uh, one of the confessions we have in this church. You can pick that up from there. Here's the question I'm after today. I'm after the question of what difference does it make in our lives? What difference does it make in the way that we live as God's people that God has preordained or in his perfect will, he's planned out who it is that we should be and how we should follow God? So without getting into the nitty details of what predestination is, is let's just talk today about how we live as people who've been set aside by God with a plan, a purpose, a reason for who we are and how we live even now. So I I marked out as we read it here sort of the, the structure in this passage, and it's on the screen here too, that you can see how the Trinity plays into this. That Paul is saying this this whole plan for your faith, this plan for your life, this plan that God has for you, every bit of who God is, is at work in that. Is working for our salvation. Every bit of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we marked that out as we read it. So verses 3 through 6 where we talk about the Father and see what the Father does in that. Talks about the way that that we are chosen before the creation of the world, before there was even such a thing as time, that God knew you would be here. He knew who you were, and he placed you in exactly the place where he wanted you to be, that God does that for us before we even know anything about who we are before the world even came into existence, that God did that for us. And he does that for us to be, what Paul says, to be chosen to be holy and righteous, blameless. That what God chose for us is to be holy, like him, set aside. And so we're chosen for that purpose before we even know who we are in that with God the Father. Paul says, adopted to sonship. Uh, Paul is borrowing a Roman term here. This comes from the Roman world because in the Roman world, they had this term of being adopted to sonship. When there was a Roman citizen in that time who would not have any children of their own, so there was no heir in the family, 
that according to the Roman law, what a Roman citizen could do was adopt someone to sonship, and that's what they called it, being adopted to sonship, and then it, it could be a family friend or someone else, but pull someone in who would become the heir to receive the inheritance. That's how Roman law worked, and it was under that title of being adopted to sonship. Paul's borrowing that language here, and he's borrowing that language to talk about the way that we are adopted by God the Father to receive the inheritance. What inheritance is that? The inheritance that he points out there is the inheritance of being holy and blameless, righteous. We receive the inheritance of the righteousness of Christ, that we are adopted into that to receive that as our inheritance. Now, now in this case, it's not that there is no other heir, because Jesus is the one who deserves all of that. But Jesus, by coming here and living the way he lived, the perfect life in our place, by sacrificing himself to go to the cross, by coming back from the grave, that Jesus does for us what we could not do on our own so that we can be adopted to sonship that we can receive what God the Father has planned for us all along and intended for our lives. Jesus then puts into effect what God the Father has preordained to happen. And this presses us to consider then, what does that mean for us? So what does that mean for you and I? So God the Father chooses us before the beginning of the world, and God the Son does everything that is necessary for us to be his children. So what does that mean for us in who we live right now? And how we think about being God's people and living in faith. I think if you were to go out and ask many people, uh, many Christians who believe, uh, what, so what does it mean to be saved? Uh, what does it mean to have salvation? A common answer you would get back from so many might be something along the lines of, well, I believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again so that I can go to heaven. That's what it means to be saved. That my soul can be with God forever in heaven. That would be a common answer that you hear when you ask that. Now, we in the Reformed tradition would tweak that a little bit because the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, talks about the end times where Jesus comes back again and makes all things new again and makes a new world again. And if you know your Apostles' Creed, you know the end of the Apostles' Creed goes, right? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting, that we talk about a resurrection that will happen, that there will be a new world. But I think what Paul is after here, and, and something for us then too is, what do we do between that time? So, so what do we do between now and then? Because Paul talks about our salvation not in future tense language, he doesn't say, and you will be saved. He talks about it now. It's already happened. That we have been saved by faith. 
that we are saved through grace, that this is already in effect. So it seems like it ought to make a difference for something that takes place in our lives right now and how that looks for us. That's what Paul's getting into here. That's what he's after. Then he moves on to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who is the guarantee that God's purpose in our lives will be completed to the end. That it's, it's not something that's left for chance. It's not maybe I will, maybe I won't. And that it's not something that, that depends on how you feel at the moment. Right? It, God's salvation does not work that way in your life. If I wake up today and think, wow, I just feel saved today. I feel like my faith is vibrant and working, but maybe something happens and after lunchtime I think, wow, you know what, I'm not so sure. I, I don't know if I feel saved the same. Salvation is not that fickle. It, it doesn't ride on how you feel in the moment. God's salvation is more powerful than that. And that's why Paul says, you know what? The Holy Spirit is a seal, a guarantee for this, that what God has done for you cannot be undone, cannot be taken away. That God's love for you is an everlasting love, and it is eternal. And there's nothing you can do to switch that off. You can't make God's love go away. That's the seal and the promise of the Holy Spirit. You see that in some of the stories of Scripture, right? Stories like the prodigal son who wanders so far away and wants nothing at all to do with his father or his family. But the father never stops loving him, never stops beckoning, is ready to welcome back with open arms. You see that in the Old Testament, in the story of Jonah. Someone called by God to go to Nineveh, and Jonah turns and runs the other way. He wants nothing to do with it. But God says, I'm not leaving you. I'm not letting you go. We see those stories again and again, that God's purpose for us, his people, doesn't depend on how you or I feel about it. It depends on what God has already decided and done about it. That's what we live in as his people. So what does it mean today? How does that show up now? Let, let me just point out one phrase here that comes in verse 10, where it talks about what, what God does through the Son, through Jesus, that the Son, Jesus, died on the cross and was raised again. And here's what it says at the end of verse 10. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That in Christ, two worlds come together. The kingdom of heaven, the perfect recreation, everything that God intends to be restored once again to its perfect beauty as when he made it before sin came into the world. And on earth now, that the world we live in now, even though we are still broken people, right? even though we are still people that, that make mistakes, we still sin. And the effects of our sin we see everywhere in our world around us. That God came in Jesus and he said, I'm not letting go of you, and I'm not letting go of your world. I'm not letting go of where you are right now. 
I'm coming and I'm taking a hold on you in the place where you live right now. And even though we still see the brokenness and we still see the sin, Jesus does that to bring our broken world back together with his perfect intent for what our world should be. And because Jesus has already come back from the dead, because Jesus has already ascended into heaven and reigns there, we see glimpses, just these little snapshots that come through, these little glimpses of what that resurrection glory looks like. I know it's not complete yet, and I know it's not in its fullness, and I know that some of us that we live in weeks and in months and in years that feel like there's so much struggle that happens. And we can't wait for the day when it's all made new again and we reach our fulfillment in God. We can't wait for that. But until then, we see glimpses. We see these snapshots of new resurrection life where God shows up in our world, works through his people, works through his church, makes himself evident. Every single time you see something good happen, That's God showing up every time because all that is good, all that is beautiful, all that is lovely in this world, all of that comes from God. Even those who don't attribute it to God, still God's goodness shows up in their lives too because that's who God is. Every time we see that, we see just a glimpse, a snapshot, of God's resurrection glory coming to us. How does that work out then? What does that mean for us who live yet today, who see those glimpses, those those pictures of that which come to us? How does that come to us? Well, we're going to be talking through the book of Ephesians to see plenty of that in the coming weeks. But, but I'm going to point out just one thing to start us off with that. And, and this is sort of a knocking on the door moment. We're, we're just sort of getting into it. We're only beginning to look at this because it's the opening of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So he's just giving us a little bit of a glimpse ahead on this. And I want to leave us with that one today of what that looks like for us to look ahead into what's coming in Ephesians here. There is a phrase in this passage that's repeated three times, and that's important. It's on purpose that Paul does this. It shows up in verse 6, in verse 12, and in verse 14, a phrase that Paul puts here to grab our attention, or at least it should. He says, to the praise of his glory, or the praise of his glorious grace. Maybe that's something that we float right by, but it means something, the way that Paul puts it in here, and especially because he repeats it three times. Praise of his glory, or praise of his glorious grace. Now, maybe we think of those words in different ways than what they would have seen it or they would have read it as. We think of praise as singing or rejoicing, being joyful, that kind of a thing. But praise, in in the Greek understanding of the word, is simply to give recognition to something or to show something or to make something known. That's what it meant to praise something, especially in a good light. It's meant to be a positive thing, not a negative thing. But to give positive recognition to something, 
is what it meant to praise. That, that's what he's after here. You ever watch one of those award shows on television, like the Oscars or the Grammys or the Emmys or something like that, and somebody wins an award and they keep on stage, and, and what do they do? Well, for as long as they can until somebody yanks them off the stage, they start going through this list of people to recognize, don't they? Well, I, I just need to recognize and thank all the people who were instrumental in getting this award, whatever that may be. Uh, producers and technicians and supporting cast and writers and whatever it is, a recognition. And it's a recognition that says, you know, this, this award that I'm looking at right now, this really comes by the work of so many others. It's somebody else's work that brings this one here. And I need to recognize that. Recognize that in a way where I show it, I call it out, I make it known. That's the Greek idea here of praise. To recognize, to call out, to make known that what it is that we've received came to us by somebody else's work. It, it wasn't us. It wasn't me. It wasn't you. So Paul is calling this one out. Calling this one out is in the world that we live in now, in the lives that we live now, there is a piece of our faith that is meant to call or to recognize or to show or to make known where this salvation life comes from. How it came to be in our lives. To the praise of his glory. Now, we think of glory, glory in different ways too. It's one of those church words that is in so many of our songs and hymns that we talk about the glory of God. In the Greek language, the word glory literally just refers to something that's bright and shiny and radiant. Something that, that is almost overpowering in its brilliance. You can't help but see it. That kind of a thing. So they would talk about that, at least the Greeks would talk about that in terms of the gods that they had, the Greek gods. That the Greek gods were glorious because they were shining and radiant and when they showed up in these stories of Greek mythology, you couldn't help but recognize them and know them and see them. But of course, in, in Greek mythology, it's because the gods showed up with power and might and strength. Paul's pointing to something different here, though, isn't he? He's saying, yes, we are meant for the praise of his glory, but the glory of God, the shining, the radiance, the brilliance of God that shines through in Jesus didn't show up with power and strength and might. It showed up in Jesus as a servant, the one who gave himself, the one who sacrificed, the one who serves others, the one who lived in humility. That becomes the radiance, the shining, the bright radiance of God in his glory. That's what shows up in ways where people cannot help but see it, notice it cannot look away from it because it draws your attention. 
three times in this passage, then Paul says, so here's how we're going to begin this. And he's got a lot more to say in Ephesians, but here's how we're going to begin this, that you and I, that we've been saved by God and set apart. And, and it begins with a recognition, knowing that we are for the praise of his glory, that our lives, are, our lives that we live, give recognition to what God has done, what God continues to do how God works through his people and works through our lives. That we are meant, our lives are meant to provide recognition of what God has accomplished and how that works for us. We see that in what God has done. Paul's calling attention to, to that here in this passage by pointing out the way that every bit of who God is has worked for that and the plan that God has for your life. Christ died and rose again so that you are saved. And that, that's not just a someday future thing. It's coming to that, but that's a right now thing. It's a today thing. So how do you live as a person who gives praise to the glory of God, that re gives recognition to what God has done, it means that we are people who recognize the grace of God and then live in ways where others recognize his grace in us. That we are people who recognize the forgiveness of God that showed up in Jesus and then we live in ways that others recognize that forgiveness in us. That we are people who recognize the humble service of God that came in Jesus and we live as people then with whom others can recognize that humble service in us. You see how that works. All those things that we attribute to God as part of his glory, the things that make him glorious, that we live in ways that embrace that so others recognize that in us. That is the new resurrection life that meets us right here now. And it's sort of step one of that as Paul's going to lay this out for us in Ephesians. But that's where he begins. He begins by pointing out, remember what God has done for you and that this wasn't plan B. This wasn't like making it up as we go. This wasn't, it didn't work the first time, so we had to find a fix. This was God's idea the whole time. His plan all along was for his people to echo his radiance, his glory. He saved us for that, called us for that. We live for that till we reach our fulfillment when he makes all things new in that. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the gift of your word and the reminder that we see there of how it is that you have planned every bit of our lives. God, may it overwhelm us that, uh, that the lives that we live are no accident, that it didn't just happen, that you're not having to change things or mix things up as we go, but you've got every step of our lives in your hand the whole way and that you have done everything that was needed for us to be able to live and abide in you in that.
thank you so much for that. God, we're sorry for the times when, when we have not given recognition to your glory because you are so radiant in your grace, in your forgiveness, in your service to us. And Lord, may you once again call us back to being the people that you've made us to be to echo that for others to see in us and through us. May our lives be so full of your salvation and so held in the grip of your Holy Spirit that we cannot help but live lives that show you to other people. We thank you for that. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.